the blast from our past network. I'm Richard Stanley, um, writer, filmmaker, and anthropologist, and I'm with, um, yeah, Zach and Corey, podcasting After Dark. Welcome to our Patreon-exclusive interview series for Podcasting After Dark, with your hosts, Corey Stevenson and Zach Schaefer. Tonight's interview is the director of Hardware, Dust Devil, and Color Out of Space, Richard Stanley. On a personal note, I just wanted to tell you that um, before we started doing this podcast, and my wife can attest to this, like four years ago, I told her that I said, if all that comes out of this podcast is I get to interview Richard Stanley one day, I will be, I will die a happy man. Now, I'm, I'm sure she was like, well, I hope you make some money doing this. But I was like, all <laughs> I hope is. <laughs> so thank you, sir. Thank you for doing this. Um, uh, our mutual friend, Juana, I've never actually met before, met her on Instagram. She told me to say hi and, and thank you, her, for, for setting all this up. But thank you so much for taking your, the time to do this with us. Uh, it's a pleasure, sir. Well, that's all thanks to the um, the pluses and minuses of the interconnected world. <laughs> yes, no doubt about that. And by the way, I'm digging your mustache on a on a personal level as well, because I've always tried to grow a mustache like that, and I cannot. So there you go. Yeah, it, it's hard. <laughs> it's taken a few years for it to come out right. <laughs> How are you feeling, by the way? Are you uh, are you still are you over the COVID, or are you um, still having some lingering effects? Yeah, still having lingering effects. We were just hit by a um, some kind of mutant strain of um, COVID. I'm not even sure what to call it this year. And it feels like there's a lot of it around, especially um, over here in Europe. But it's weird because um, COVID's out of fashion, so technically it kind of doesn't exist. No one's wearing masks and um, right. no one's calling it a pandemic. But um, we've definitely all got it. And um, it's kind of it's kind of phasing out, but it's still, you know, a wee bit trippy, like having one's drink spiked for a bit of, um, yeah, lightweight, um, yeah, ecstasy or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got, I had it a couple of months ago, and oh, it's yeah, it's not fun. And my mom's traveling. Actually, my mom, I think, is in the same time zone as you are. She's over in France right now, so she's uh, visiting over there. And I hope she comes back safe and everything, especially with all the stuff that's happening right now. Yeah, we're about right. to you guys. Oh, uh, Zach is in Los Angeles, and I oh. am in Oregon, uh, right outside of Portland. Okay, so yeah, the very distant time zone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm uh, currently staring at a uh, fog-induced uh, view of the ocean. I'm in Santa Monica, so uh, the fog has rolled in, and John Houseman is. Uh, <laughs> playing in my head from John Carpenter's The Fog, right? So Yeah, very nice. I've got some very good memories of Santa Monica and the Fog. That's do you? Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a little creepy, too. Yeah, it, it has uh, I used to be a, a kindergarten teacher, and I would tell, and we would get big gusts of uh, fog rolling in near our, near our classroom, and I keep the door open. And one day, the fog's just rolling in, and the kids are like, look at the fog! And then I went into the monologue from The Fog, and I said, it's 2.55. Sorry, I started going to the whole thing. And the kids were terrified. They're like, is that real? I go, 
You'll have to find out. And I got inundated with a bunch of emails from parents like, what is this story you told our kids? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It is a pleasure having you on our show, though. And obviously, Corey and I are huge fans. Corey uh, chose hardware and uh, color out of space to break down scene by scene. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but we broke those movies down scene by scene. Yeah, yeah that was hardware was um, we started the show back four years ago. Um, Zach and I, the way we do the show is we each pick a movie every other week. Um, my first movie was heavy metal just because that's so near and dear to my heart. But my second movie that I broke down for the show was hardware. And I've been in love with that movie since it came out in 1990 my friend group all love it we've all like have this bond over hardware and it's just it was amazing to sort of just bring it to the show and and, and hear fans reactions to it uh, there's a huge cult follow i mean you know it who, who, who are we talking to you know there's a huge cult following for hardware yeah pleased to hear it i mean i'm sorry that the 21st century has turned out to be so hardware-esque i <laughs> right. I mean, it's really just coming from the fact I was always terrified of um, the time period we're living in now, I guess, as uh, I was fearing it as early as the 80s. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of caught up for us. But I'm also a big heavy metal fan. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, something I'd dearly love to see, just putting it out there, is a um, a new anthology along similar lines using um, present-day um, VFX and animation techniques because there's just um, so much that can be done going into that material. And I'd love to see a, yeah, a new anthology along those lines, even um, readapting some of that, some of the same original material. Um, <clears throat> the Mobius, Dan O'Bannon, Long Tomorrow, or the yeah, the Richard Corbin, Den Saga, etc. There's still so much life in that original material. Well, we were we uh, broke we reviewed uh, Jodorowsky's Dune, that documentary, and one of the things we were hoping to see is maybe them do an animated version of Jodorowsky's Dune one day. I think the animation could pull it off spectacularly. Yeah, it's certainly been talked about a lot. And um, I don't know whether it's a rights issue or why no one's actually gone there, but it's, yeah, potentially within striking distance. Maybe it's some kind of terrible yeah, irony that you're only allowed to recreate people's some um, dreamworks after they're dead or something, and they're all um, just holding their breath. But uh, certainly the storyboards are all there, and um, it's, um, yeah, it's possible to recreate. Going back to what you just said, though, I, I literally wrote down your quote from the No uh, uh, Flesh Will Be Spared documentary, which came out in 2009. And you said that you were afraid to be alive in the next 20 years because it, it, we we're heading towards the hardware universe. And that was 14 years ago. Are we do you see that we're still on track for that for 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 your pro, for that prophecy right there? Well, I don't really see it as a prophecy. It's really just kind of bad attitude. And uh, I just assume that, <laughs> yeah, a, a, anything that uh, we invented or any technological improvements would be um, used against us uh, wouldn't necessarily uh, end up um, being to our benefit. I want to be more of an optimist about technology. I mean, I, I would wish that, yeah, drones and AI didn't mean that we'd end up with um, inevitably with drone soldiers. 
Uh, I, I would like the, to believe in the liberatory potential of the technosphere and the fact that we can reach out across continents and um, that this would, in fact, increase our personal freedom. But in effect, it's kind of gone the other way and it's made it much, much easier for um, everyone to um, know one's business, to um, get into one's bank account, to um, somehow uh, yeah, take one's income faster than you can bring it in, etc. Um, it hasn't quite worked out in our, in our favor. And then there's lots of little things in hardware like the um, the legalization of um, yeah of the, the freely available government government monopoly marijuana, which um, is kind of yeah legally given to the people as almost like a, a prescription drug to keep everyone asleep. The um, the gradual slide of the of the environment into something which is yeah unstable and unlivable without um, there in any real need for a um, a seismic third world war or any one particular event um, yeah setting it off and um, yeah i guess the the gradual slide to uh, into yeah um totalitarianism which is also a a shadow haunting hardware yeah i mean it's you know again i i've watched hardware probably once a year since 1990 and uh, it's your Chris it's your Christmas yeah, movie. exactly <laughs> exactly it's a Christmas movie um no. and you pick I, I pick up on so many things so many new things each time I watch it and I showed it to my wife uh for the first time yet last night just prepping and everything like that and she loved it so a first time viewing in 2023 she thought it was amazing um that movie stands the test of time and zach's mentioned it before that it, it demands repeat viewing but like one thing that i noticed you know when i was younger and, and sort of as times changed i always thought you know the character of link uh lincoln was sort of stuck in that time frame but now as we're moving like you just said how we're all aware of what each other's doing I was like, oh, my God, Link is so much more accurate now, except he's not looking through an actual high-powered lens. He's stalking you through Facebook, through Instagram, and all this kind of stuff. So I just feel like hardware is one of those movies that can just adapt and fit into any time frame that people view it in, and I think that it's still relevant in every time frame. Yeah, I mean, I guess also I've just had a lifelong... Um fear of um, inanimate objects kind of getting up and moving by themselves, which is, uh, I recognize as irrational, but there's something about the whir of um, servo motors that has you know, given me um, goosebumps and set my teeth on edge ever since I was a kid. Uh, and, uh, I've always had a, um, a kind of inescapable nightmare that um, sooner or later the um, drone soldiers would be coming for me. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to lie. When I was a kid, too, I, maybe it was me seeing uh, that bad. Well, that's not bad. The Michael Crichton movie Runaway and seeing little mechanical spiders moving around and going, is that real? Could that really happen? And just the idea of like technology. I think that's as a child with your imagination all over the place. Everything's open, an open book. Envisioning anything coming to life. But then taking that idea as an adult and making something out of it makes it even more terrifying. Yeah, I mean, I guess um, Crichton's material stands up pretty good after all this time as well. Uh, <laughs> right. Maybe it's somewhat more optimistic, but a lot of things which slipped by me in his stuff when I was first watching it back in the day, like the um, 
I'm stealing people's images and getting them to basically act after they're dead, like in Looker and things, all seem to have, yeah, come home to roost at various points. Right. Oh, my god. It's gosh. almost like all these dystopian movies from the 80s and 90s were actually roadmaps and not cautionary tales. <laughs> Well, I guess um, yeah, yeah. By looking on the the, the dark side, it, one tends to, I guess, be um, score more hits and being optimistic. I I wanted as a kid to believe that um, yeah, faster than light travel and um, first contact and um, kind of some kind of galactic federation might be part of my future. But uh, I, I've never fully believed it. It's in my dark heart. I've always imagined I'd end up, um, yeah, trapped in the apartment block in hardware. Yeah, which is it's its own sort of nightmare. Even though you know you create these worlds, uh, you know we've seen it like Zach in uh, Shivers, Cronenberg Shivers, and whatnot. This idea of building these apartment complexes, um, you know, in Demons too, these apartment complexes where where everything you need is right there. And I feel like you know uh, Wendy's sort of you know apartment in hardware is sort of similar but then you know us as humans we need to get out we need to be a part of things and everything and i feel like it's such a it's such an unnatural state for her but i see why she's doing it and why it's important for the story but it's also a terrifying prospect of that's the future that we're we're going to be moving towards yeah i guess increasingly so although for hardware it was also a um a budgetary consideration and that, um, yeah, um, Bava's demons and um, Migueli Suave's stage fright were um, big influences in that they um, came immediately before hardware and um, showed us all clearly that if we could contain the action to a single location, um, we had a chance of um, pulling it off. I've, uh, yeah, always dreamed of um, trying to return to the, the hardware world. But um, yeah, the the rights to the story are um, are so conflicted that trying to um, get everyone who claims to own hardware around the same table to agree is um, yeah made it very difficult for me to ever make it out of the apartment building and um, show more of the world they're in. Well, hopefully that'll happen. If it doesn't, uh, we have so much of your other work to cherish and appreciate. And I know uh, for one. My first introduction to your career was seeing Dust Devil when I was a kid. Uh, not a kid, but, you know, teenager, whatever. Um, and, Corey, you, you, it's fairly newish for you to revisit Dust Devil. Yeah, right? I, I watched it when it first came out, but it, it didn't connect with me the way hardware did uh, until recently. I, I revisited, revisited uh, Dust Devil recently. And I was like, oh, my God, like, I love this movie. And it caused me to just think about how, you know, how we should all revisit, you know, stories and anything over our years, because, you know, it, what might not be ready for us when we're 12 or 14, it might be made for us when we're 45 years old and we can appreciate what's there. And I I know that Dust Devil, the whole there's a, you know, the your cut versus their cut. Unfortunately, in the U.S., the only version is that I could find and everything is is the the U.S. cut, uh, which is about an hour and 26 minutes. Um, my question to you is. The, I know that these that 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 Dust, Dust Devil and hardware is not like sort of how you envisioned it from the beginning, but they still resonate with the viewer and in the form that they're in. And, you know, I don't know if I would want anything different, obviously like, but 
how does that con how is that how do you like reconcile that conflict of knowing like what you wanted to originally have versus what came out and then still having people love what came out though you know i don't know if i'm asking a question there and i'm sorry <laughs> you are you are well i guess it's more like a process in that you know um Hardware um, soundtrack. The this is what you want. This is what you get. Um, the um, <laughs> love that song. Women, yeah, the um, John Lydon track that um, we ended up using as pretty much the um, main theme song um, was something I just played every day in um, in Russia's initially. Okay. Uh, it was yeah every day it was you know we want what we, we once we wanted one thing but we were getting <laughs> we were get we were getting something else and, um, that was yeah clearly demonstrated um all the way through but i think if you're flexible enough to take advantage of um what that other thing is that's that's happening at the same time and um yeah um channel it fully then you it, it brings the beast to life I mean, if you're just going to execute the scripts and the storyboards, it's going to kind of be um, perfect but lifeless. So the, um, the the crazy fractured nature of the um, of the shooting process was, yeah, I think often helped with their personalities. This is a slight deviation, but but you bringing up this is what you want, this is what you get. Um, that's on my workout playlist, by the way, and uh, I want to. I wanted to ask you musically what uh, artists or songs like drive you. What are certain is is the, is it that style of music that you're ultimately uh, attracted to? Well, I think that swings with the the project. I mean, okay. um, ha having had a, a a career at one point in um, music videos, my um, sense of um, what it was that I, I personally liked got pretty much thrown out of the window because there was a a period of several years when we were pretty much having to shoot one music video a month to um, to break even and at that point in time yeah um personal um preference kind of um yeah becomes less relevant but um yeah on um color out of space obviously beyond um the colin stetson um score i was also putting into a lot of um yeah scandinavian um black metal material um, oh cool um, thanks to all the stuff that's on um, Lavinia's headphones in um, in color, and that yeah, yeah, definitely something I'd like to um, to lean into further because there's yeah, a, a lot of bands out there I think which who are undergoing a very, for me, very interesting mutation at the moment, and kind of um, a, a somewhere between uh, um, yeah, metal and full um, shamanic um, yeah. Um, magical ritualistic material which um i can definitely i would definitely like to go further with that's cool that's cool i mean bodhi uh, bodhi <laughs> my son but his name is bodhi he's i would say that he's definitely been a muse of mine ever since he was born and he's very magical in in many ways but Corey was the first person to kind of turn me on to magic uh citing you as actually an example when we first met each other way back when in 2014 um, can you talk about your background with magic and and how you got so connected to it? Well, I get, and it's scarcely a secret, but um, yeah, oh, most of the, of my problems on that front to my mother 
because um, my mom was an anthropologist, Penny Miller, who um, wrote a, a great big fat book called Myths and Legends of Southern Africa, uh, which um, was something she was cooking up in the earliest years of my life. I think it, it landed when I was about six. But for, for the first five years or so of my life, um, she was busy writing it and researching it. So I was being um, dragged around from um, one remote area of Africa to another, um, with, uh, meeting a lot of different, extremely strange um, tribal people and always seeking out um, the um, what we'd now call a traditional healer, um, what in those days we would have called a sangoma or a witch doctor as the, um, yeah, the the font of wisdom. And I guess up to about six years old, when I first started going to school, um, I had no realm norm to compare that to. So um, it was very easy to um, to believe in a um, what we'd now see as a, I guess, a magical universe, and that all that stuff um, seemed real to me. It took a bit of time and a bit of unlearning at school to um, realize that other folk didn't necessarily believe that there were, um, say, invisible people living in the riverbeds who had magic pebbles that they kept in their mouths or any of these um, strange concepts that um, had been, I guess, impressed on me as a as a very young kid. But then, um, that's well, yeah, you go, sir. No, I was going to I was going to say that is the perfect age, though to be tapping into that, in my opinion, because I feel like as we get older, it gets diluted, we become more cynical, more, uh, uh, you know, adverse to that open mindedness. And at that age, it's such a pure open time, and that you're exposed to it. It's really interesting. Yeah, so I guess that gave me a bit of a head start. And then it's been something that's, um, yeah, it always interested me there afterwards, mostly in terms of trying to um, to find um, demonstrable proofs of uh, the supernatural, the unknown, the the, uh, the the slippy way that it seems to um, yeah interact with our reality. Yeah, no, in in a lot of these concepts um, you put into Dust Devil, was that uh, a project? Was that project more near and dear to your heart than Hardware was? Um, I wouldn't say so, but Dust Devil was um, maybe the first um, screenplay I ever tried to write. Um, it was born when I was about 16 years old, and um, it was written before Hardware. Uh, um, and I was, I was initially hoping to shoot it in South Africa. And I think the logic behind it was uh, what was the easiest thing we could shoot, uh, um, utilizing the landscape and uh, maybe two characters and uh, a red Volkswagen and tried to come up with something that we could um, shoot locally. So I think it's, um, yeah, very much informed by, um, yeah, African mythology and, um, yeah, regional witchcraft, as well as the um, the emotional temperature of the country at that point in time. Um, it, there's got to be a reason that the devil has blonde hair and blue eyes in, um, in Dust Devil. That's yeah. kind of... If, if in um, South Africa, they had um, very extreme censorship um, under the Dutch Reformed Church. Uh, almost everything was banned. Um, no, political movies, films like Cry Freedom or Dry White Season were actually released, and you, we, we saw them at school. 
But um, under the Dutch Reformed Church, um, the Exorcist was banned, the Omen was banned, um, David Cronenberg's Scanners was banned, even Joe Dante's The Howling was banned, um, Rocky Horror Picture Show was banned. People went to jail for uh, having VHSs of Rocky Horror Picture Show. Heavy Metal Comic Book was banned. So, wow. um, yeah, there, there was a distinct prejudice against... Um, yeah weird stuff in general and anything that was ha, had had specifically to do with the devil they really hated 70s devil movies when um frankenstein and the monster from hell the last peter cushing frankenstein movie was released um so they went over the print and took out the words from hell with a felt of marker pen so that the print had read Frankenstein and the monster. And then there was this little blot next to it, jumping up and down, covering the words from hell. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So there was wow. kind of an intent to try to make a, a home devil movie, an indigenous. Uh, the sense was that as we weren't allowed to have devil movies, uh, we thought, well, can we, um, can we make our own devil movie? My, right. my favorite line from that movie is when he says, you have to stop thinking like a white man and start thinking like a man. And I was like, that is just, that's amazing. And I do, I mean, he was, uh, uh, Dust Devil was, I love that movie. I think it's absolutely amazing. The one shot where he actually brings the wind forward, he kind of turns around and grabs something out of the air. Is that symbolizing him actually grabbing something on the other side and killing it before he like sort of creates the wind like that? Yeah, I guess he's creating some kind of, I don't know, portal or, te or tearing a hole in reality. Uh, it's a very long time since we shot that. And it was a, yeah, it's done with a, um, I, I know we did it for Contrapuntal Zoom, where we um, tracked in and zoomed out at the same time to squash the perspective and um, simultaneously blasted him with turbines from a jet engine. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's an amazing shot. I watched, I rewound it like four times. I was like, just his movements and the camera angle. I just, I loved it. I thought it was absolutely amazing. Well, I hope you find a full copy of the thing. I'm trying to seek out that director's cut. It's different. Yeah, um, I I have it in my Amazon uh, cart. It's like fifty dollars, uh, and I don't have a region free player. Um, but I'm th I have it. So. I have okay, it. Okay, I'm thinking about pick. I'll send it. Okay. You've got my permission to run dubs. But... <laughs> <laughs> I'll let him borrow it. I'll let you borrow it. <laughs> thank, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I, I did have a question because you, you mentioned Colorado Space. One of our listeners, Rob, um, he, he has two questions. Um, one of them is kind of an easy one. Uh, what is your favorite Lovecraft story? Well, that would depend on my mood. I mean, the very first Lovecraft story I ever met was um, Dream Quest for Unknown Kadath, which my mum read to me when I was a kid. So I've got um, particularly warm feelings towards um, some of that material. But um, beyond that, um, the all, all of the major stories um, have a similar habit to, as you're saying about rewatching films that one saw when one's young. I reread and reread those stories. Um, they've changed as I've gotten older. They, they don't really um, entirely stay the same. So um, different aspects of yeah loomed out of uh, the, the the weave of Lovecraft's writing, which um, has really rewarded um, yeah um, continuous textual scholarship. I've found very tiny things that you know in just a few words sometimes that have really um altered my um my perception of the uh, of the stories um whisper and darkness has been um looming very large in my life lately just because of the area I'm living in and um that's when I return to quite a lot I 
I think I read the whole thing out loud the other day. And I do want to talk to you about uh, uh, The Other World and that documentary and everything. Um, but I want to – Rob has one more question, and it's about The Voice of the Moon. Um, he asks, would you um, ever consider like doing a follow-up, like maybe going back to the same place and, and sort of seeing how it is and everything? Or was that just a moment in time for you? Well, it was definitely a, a very distinct moment in time. Voice of the Moon's the um... – the film we shot during the, um, the, in fact, two trips we made into Afghanistan at the um, tail end of the 80s. And, um, yeah, we were super lucky to have done that. It's, um, I, I never got as far into the mountains as I wanted to get. Um, essentially, um, people have a problem shooting Afghanistan just because of electricity. Um, all of the electronic news gathering equipment needs to be recharged from car cigarette lighters, which means that people tend to stick to the roads, which tend to run through the flattest, driest, most boring parts of the country. But um, once you get into the Hindu Kush, there's mountains that yeah roll into the Karakorams, into the Kashkut Mountains, and off into the Himalayas. And between all those mountains are river valleys and cedar forests and um, places that have never been electrified, where there's never been really a written language, uh, where dialects vary from valley to valley. So um, I've never been able to penetrate as far as I would have liked into that world. And that um, certainly there's still people who are, yeah, living in um, the same circumstances as, yeah, the time of Christ or before. And the, um, yeah, the natural pattern of life is, yeah, much the same. And I know there's stuff in there which um, nobody knows about. Uh, it's just, just it's archaeological and, yeah, geological things in there which um, no one's ever really seen or, um, or photographed. So um, the lure is strong, but... Um, since the 80s, of course, we've had the whole business of, yeah, of 9-11 and, um, yeah, the war on terror. So our um, everyone's geopolitical allegiances have changed. Um, back in those days, um, everyone was, all the focus was for unified because everyone was essentially against Russia and against um, against communism. So, yeah, the, the U.S. and um, the U.K. and um, Pakistan and um, the people who are going to turn into the Taliban and the guerrilla movements uh, were, and the CIA and the intelligence services were all in lockstep, more or less, on the same side. Now, now it's all hyper-divided, so um, it's super dangerous, I think, for a... Um, yeah, a Westerner to um, to penetrate into those same places. I I would love to go back. And um, round about the um, the immediate aftermath of 9/11, um, lobbied hard to try and get myself back to Kabul and to um, try and get another documentary off the ground. And um, it's still very um, very very difficult material to get near. A lot of logistics. I can imagine. Oh, no, no, I was just saying a lot of logistics. Go ahead, Zach. A lot of yeah, a lot of logistics. But I, I think also too, you're hitting on something that I, I that resonates with me. Um, so much of this world that we are unfamiliar with, not don't know about, and I always go back to this kind of childlike perspective. Um, I remember seeing a Geary Wrath of God when I was like. 10 years old and just fell in love with the visuals didn't necessarily understand everything I was watching uh, but but that movie really resonated with me and, and it made me curious about 
the world around us that we just don't know about. Right. And 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 how many places, especially living in the United States, how many places can you go where there is zero electricity? There is zero magnetic fields. Right. That that uh, that you that you can feel or hear around you. And I mean, I really hope on a personal note, I really hope that you get to shoot there someday or, or make follow up, because I think the world needs to see these things. I think kids need to see these things to expose themselves. Like you, your mom sounds rad, by the way. She sound the fact that you, she exposed you to so much at a young age, mythologically, archeology span wise uh, is just fascinating. And I think the more we do that for younger people, the more it opens up their uh, wanting of more knowledge of the world versus being closed minded. I don't know if that makes sense to you or not, but that just, that's where I'm at. Yeah, no, it does make a lot of sense. I mean, Lovecraft and everything else is really about the fear of the unknown. Um, right. Yeah, um, pushing into the unknown. Uh, and, um, much of that fear tends to evaporate once we get a, a better understanding of what the heck it is that we're we're actually dealing with. There's a there's a great kids book. I think it's called In the Dark. About a little kid who wakes up in the middle of the night and hears a voice calling him saying come closer come closer right and the whole house is dark and he and it's leading him to the basement and he gets down into the basement and he's saying i'm here i'm here pull the drawer open i'm here you know and the whole thing leads up to this idea of that when he opens up the drawer it's a light bulb talking to him and he uses the light bulb and suddenly the the place is illuminated and it's beautiful but leading up to that point as a reader you're terrified because of this unknown with this mysterious voice leading you in. Right. Uh, and, and I think, yeah, it, Lovecraft resonates with me for sure as well, because so much of his, his magical storytelling that he does was written at a time when like, I think it still holds up today. You just said you read the, you know, the last story you just read out loud and I think that's important, too, to read stories out loud. It gives a, a whole other voice when you do that. Um, that's very powerful. I think HBL stands up better and better. In uh, to, A lot of his ideas are only just beginning to um, to make sense, given what we um, yeah, now know about the, uh, the physical universe. Right. Yeah. Right. We, we, you know, we broke down color out of space. Like I said, Corey uh, masterfully did it scene by Great scene. And, and, and I think we talked about it for three and a half yeah. hours or something. <laughs> one um, of our longer ones. <laughs> right. But it's just visually striking. Like it is such a beautiful film. Um, even the horrors, I, I, even yeah. the horrors in it are beautiful. Sorry, Zach. I mean, to cut you off. No, 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 no. Continue, but, Corey. Like, you, but there's, but you there's beauty it. in horror in that movie, and I, I love horror movies like that where there is beauty, not in the carnage, but there's beauty in in the monstrosity, and I think that movie pulls it off very well. Ah, oh, mercy. No, it's something I very much believe in real life. I mean. Beyond the fact that beauty also kind of knows no morality and that just terrible things um, can be yeah, extraordinarily beautiful at the same time as being utterly terrible. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I mean, I don't want to bring it back to hardware, but I mean, Moe's death is one of the most beautiful death scenes, I think, in a movie ever filmed. And there's so much there's so much reason behind it. There's so much to it. Um, but that is another example of like there is beauty 
there can be their beauty can be found in horror like that. And I think Moe's death is another example of that. Oh, thank you. That's praise indeed. <laughs> well, and I know that Mo wasn't he didn't turn out the way you sort of wrote him to begin with. But I don't know if that death would have resonated if he had been any different than who he was. Even my wife was like, that was amazing. I was like, I know, right? Like, that death scene is insanely awesome. And, you know, it's because you care about the character, but it's also the editing. It's, it's, it's you know, seeing the Mark 13 do its thing. Like, it's gaining power while Moe's dying and just the camera's moving in and, and his voice is echoing. And, oh, my God, it's just, it's amazing. And I just, I'm kind of gushing right now, and I apologize. But it's, it's a beautiful... <laughs> death scene and i'm comparing it to because i watched something the other night where a big budget movie where the the main character you're supposed to care about dies and it was just it was kind of goofy and it was kind of lifeless and i kind of and i felt nothing and then i watched hardware last night and i felt everything i was supposed to feel when mo died and i'm just like this is this is amazing this is what cinema can do uh praise indeed sir <laughs> i have no question there there's nothing there <laughs> Let's talk about other. Let's talk about yeah, other so world, though, <laughs> uh, the other world, because uh, you, that that is a project that was very near and dear to your heart, right? Well, it was kind of an accident, but it was uh, it, it, most of my films are accidents, and uh, that was no exception. Um, I had a um, cinematographer friend staying with me who was um, kind of going through a hard time and had all his equipment with him. Uh, and uh, as a result, we um, started shooting little bits and pieces, interviewing neighbors and um, um, climbing up the mountain and taking occasional shots. Uh, and um, yeah, after um, we had about um, 20 minutes of um, scintillating material, a um, producer friend in Paris, Fabrice Lambeau, gave us um, 20 grand to bring it up to feature length. But there was no no real uh, yeah intention at the beginning to um to shoot a movie we were um simply um yeah documenting the place we were in and the people who were around at the time and given that every, everything that's happened and um the um the fact that um three quarters of the people in um the other world are now dead um means that um i'm, I'm super grateful we had that opportunity to um it, yeah, to to capture that, and um, yeah, um, over the last ten years, a lot has a lot has moved on. But yeah, the um, the shadow of of um, all the things that were going to happen are kind of present in the um, in the warp and weave of the um, the little documentary that we um, yeah shot back in the day. And, and um, you, were yeah, you shooting? Fun. Were you shooting the the secret glory when when you sort of stumbled upon that? Yeah, it was a. It, it came out. It, it it was the um, the result, I guess, of yeah, chasing down the Otto Rahn story in Secret Glory. It was really, a series of things happened in the early nineties. I was um, commissioned by Channel Four Television to um, research a projected documentary on the backstory to Raiders of the Lost Ark, and um, they dispatched me to Europe to see if there was any truth to the story that um, the Third Reich had been after the the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Grail, the Spear of Longinus, or any of these um, mythical um, biblical artifacts. And um, then, um, yeah, endowed with the um, the funds from Channel Four, I got on the trail and um, found um, a pretty good Grail story. 
um, found this character of um, Otto Wilhelm Rahn, the German-Jewish Grail historian who ended up working for the SS and who um, tried to um, yeah, track the treasure of the ages to um, to the Pyrenees, to the mountains of southern France. And um, yeah, while all the executives at Channel 4 assumed this was um, an example of the um, the insanity of the Nazis, I felt a need to kick the tires on um, Otto's story and went to the places that he described in um, in his text. And I guess um, that set me off down a trail. In the course of it, I met um, maybe um, 20 people who had um, known Otto personally and were able to tell me the story firsthand when um, Channel 4 television lost interest in the material and didn't want to... Um, proceed with the documentary and my different informants started um, dying of old age because really the um, the at that period of time the 1990s was the last time that anyone who was an adult or in a command position in World War II was still really um, functional or uh, yeah, available to to be interviewed to begin with so uh, yeah I felt that the compulsion to um, just for the record to um, to cover the material and to um, myself anyway, which is how Secret Glory got going. Um, and in the course of shooting Secret Glory, which <clears throat> had a number of, of, of odd folk involved, I mean, the um, the principal camera operator was Pascal Laugier, who later made that film Martyrs. Yeah. So, oh, uh, wow. Okay. It was an odd, odd shoot, Secret Glory. Uh, yeah. yeah, where I got to meet um, the mountain of Montsegur and some of the... Um, yeah, the, the towns and mountains here in the region, and obviously it, it held on to me because um, I'm still here. I was going to ask, is that where you're located now? Yeah, no, I moved here full-time back in the yeah, beginning of the 21st century. Okay, okay. Um, and just to let our listeners know, um, uh, The Other World is on Tubi, and uh, I highly recommend it. It's a very awesome documentary. Um, you and I don't know. I mean, you can, people can watch the documentary and everything. I don't know how much you want to talk about the event uh, with the lady that came out of the shadows and everything like that. But one thing I wanted to to ask you because you mentioned in the documentary, you know, after that event and after that night, you know, you kind of went back and and you know you were trying to work on other things, but everything else sort of felt lesser than um, you know, the, like it just felt less important now because of it. So how my question to you is, how do you live with the epiphany? Like when when things of this nature happen um, and they all happen, they happen to all of us. Sometimes we don't even notice it, but sometimes things, amazing things like this will happen. And then you have to live with that epiphany. You, ha you know, your life has to keep on, you know, going. You have to keep doing things, even though you want to focus on this other thing. Now, you you know, you had a chance to actually make a documentary on it and sort of dive into it. But like. Is it dependent on the person? Is it dependent on the, the, the size of the epiphany? Is it dependent on the interest level? Like, how do you move past that? Yeah, it's very, very tricky when um, your day-to-day -day life is interrupted by um, a supernatural event, whether it's a, a seeing a, a UFO or um, experiencing the living presence of Jesus or, or Buddha. It, it, it's tricky then to, yeah, to readjust to the so-called real world. And um, I've always been um, heavily motivated by trying to figure out whether um, consciousness survives death and whether there's uh, proof for, of the, um, the supernatural world. 
so obviously it trailed the um the carrot of being of being yeah verifiable proof or um some form of evidence i could um i could latch onto and in comparison with that everything else that i was doing did seem um yeah um like a, kind of like a waste of time it seemed it, it seemed to make more sense to try to um swim directly towards the towards the mystery and to um to try to penetrate it or understand it better and um of course that kind of thinking can get you into a lot of trouble because um you know there's any number of folk who after um yeah seeing a ufo or um having some kind of um inexplicable experience um end up having their lives fully derailed like the say the richard dreyfus character in um close encounters um you have a yeah a high likelihood of yeah losing your partner your family your job um and yeah plunging into the the hell of um insanity and bankruptcy so it's a <laughs> i think people forget that too by the way because they go oh close encounters it's spielberg it's a pg film it's so cute and like no richard dreyfus loses his mind and loses everything at one point so Sorry. Yeah, no, I think that's fairly accurate in terms of the the impact that um, some kind of par- a, a, a fully blown um, yeah paranormal or um, yeah otherworldly event could 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 have on one's one's balance. Um, it, it's I think that happens to most folk. It, it's kind of understandable, and that, that's also what makes it kind of dangerous because there's um, a lot of. Um, extremely crazy and um heavily motivated people out there with their own um agendas and, Who are um, sort of looking for an excuse to do something based on their agendas um and yeah and but for you uh you're you know you're obviously a visual artist you're you're a filmmaker is getting the proof is that ultimately you know the goal for you or you know is that is that your main motivation is getting the proof at this point um, I wouldn't say that at this point that's still my main motivation. I think that was my motivation back in the um in the nineteen nineties. I mean, um basically um in the in the early stages of um investigating the Ran affair, I was up in the castle of Montsegur in the French Pyrenees and um saw an electrical storm for um where um there were multiple bolts of plasma striking into the castle which looked a bit like a um a big fiery hand with fingers which were reaching down to um yeah to 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 presumably incinerate us so we were all terrified but then um on um about eight years later we came back and spent an awful long time with um with time-lapse cameras trying to capture the same thing um trying to literally um photograph it we went back with um with thermal cameras so there was a point when um i was directly chasing um the um prima facie evidence of um what was going on but i think were you able to get it i never never really to my satisfaction okay uh, it's, it's, it's 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 a it's a slippy business and um i've never had the funding to or the um basically the academic backing to um to 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 fully start chasing down some of the stuff i'd like to chase down and um if um i'd been a deranged academic i might have gone down a um yeah a, a, a very different path but i do think that it's possible to find um to uh, quantifiable evidence of um different phenomena i think that um 
you can um, fi find traces in brainwaves of um, possession experiences and different yeah, altered states of, 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 of consciousness. And um, there's some um, kind of a, um, a, a, an unknown science at work behind a lot of the stuff. And I find the moment any phenomenon, if, if it's even if it's a white lady, a, a ghost that manifests in, the, in a tower room, um, if it's repeatable, um it starts to come into science and um the moment something's repeatable you can um start to start to study it um um so yeah I, I guess i've always been a believer in the charles fort maxim of um extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence um um and so um yeah I, i've been driven i guess by trying to find um demonstrable proofs of some of these things but in in more recent years i've also just um yeah given up um on on trying to document some of it and i also accept that it's um probably dangerous to um to do so uh, that um, we're still not living in a period where it's um fully okay to um uh, to to really put the stuff about well, it's almost well, you, like we're, it's getting worse too. I feel like we're we're kind of yeah. going backwards in time in, in that regard. As information is becoming yep. becoming more and more open, it seems like it's getting more and more you know cinched shut. Um, in the other world documentary, it came out about 2013. So you were, I think you were filming around 2012, and it was kind of around that whole 2012 vibe and everything. Um, in the area since then, has I, I'm sure all of that has calmed down the 2012ness of it. But is is there still an energy to that area? Is it still drawing people in, or was that a more concentrated effect of 2012? No, it's continuing to pinwheel towards the some kind of um, yeah apocalyptic resolution. I think, which um, it's just um, evolved in ways that um, yeah no one could possibly have imagined. I mean, so there are a number of reasons for it. It's because of the geographic isolation of the area um, on one level, and also it's under development. Um, we're very lucky to be um, here in the Pyrenees to be yeah, pretty cut off from the mainstream of um, Western European life. Uh, we've still got a lot of wild forest and wild mountains and um, yeah, potent um, energies going on down here. And in the course of the last few years with um, the with COVID, with um, the um, yeah, internet conspiracy sphere out of control. Um, a lot of folk here in the zone, particularly during um, lockdown, uh, um, have moved very far from reality at times, or at least the definition of reality has gotten um, yeah, extremely woozy. There were um, periods of time when people were genuinely thinking that we were being invaded by aliens or that um, various people in the village were being replaced. There's a general um, sense that um, some kind of millennial change is taking place. The uh, the apparition in the castle and much of that material is linked to a um, a prophecy, um, which um, basically fell due a couple of years ago. Where this notion that the uh, yeah the edifice of the Holy Roman Church will fall and that the old religion and the old ways will return which was something which um continues to yeah um boil under the under the surface in the sense of yeah the 
the old gods wanting to um, to re-manifest themselves so uh, they, you know, at the same time an opposition which is um kind of a a corollary of um yeah a force of control which is battling frantically to try to um, to stop that from happening so when a prophecy comes and goes what's next well, usually the yeah the dates get revised ever backwards. In the tradition, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the way it's dealt with, but some some residue sticks around. Um, yeah, continu- continues to accrue. I mean, I think the first person out here to start talking about um, dimensional portals and um, the notion that um, the area would serve as some kind of refuge of the apocalypse was a lady named Elizabeth Van Buren, who was I think the granddaughter of. One of America's less, least memorable presidents. Um, I was just going to yeah. say Martin Van Buren. Um, Van Buren boys. <laughs> yeah, Elizabeth what? wrote a book called um, "Yeah, Refuge of the Apocalypse: Ren the Chateau, the Key, Doorways to Other Dimensions." Back in the early '80s, I think she was expecting um, the end of the world to be 1983 or 1987, um, all the way back. Wow. Then. Yeah. Um, and she was long gone already by the time um, 2012 came around when um, the whole, um, when they declared a state of martial law in the area and there was the whole um, UFO hysteria, UFO, UFO flap, which really resembled um, the, the closing reels of Close Encounters quite strongly. <laughs> right. And, um, yeah, that, it, it didn't happen in 87, it didn't happen in 2012, but a, a general sense of, yeah, I guess um, incipient apocalyptic hysteria is yeah still present in the um, yeah in the in the, um, the pattern yeah um, um, and everything it, sort of adds to the folklore the history of it right like it just all keeps compiling yeah. and adding on yeah and um, there's a lot of folk with a vested interest in the um, in the prophecy oh, um, yeah. in the uh, and in the um, the white lady because this um this notion of the yeah the overturning of um the patriarchal roman church um yeah the um the 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 rise of the goddess or the um is very much in keeping with um the current zeitgeist and um speaks loudly to um yeah militant feminism and to um i think also um the Christian community, which is um, a strange um, mutation, but um, what we've seen down here is a lot of folk from different areas of um, the world and uh, taking a um, a very strong interest in um, yeah what's been happening in um, in Montsegur and the um, this issue of the um, yeah the white lady the the apparition. Have there been any other sightings uh, by you or by anybody else since the since then? They're, since they're pretty the... constant. Oh, okay, okay, wow. It's it, 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 it's it's ongoing. It's been pretty constant. It's um, a um, there's a Danish um, gentleman Lars Mule who set himself up as a bit of a guru, who wrote a book called the O Manuscript, which I think he's just made a film based on. Um, who's um, yeah, been seeing the the lady of the thing on the mountain for years and years has his his own take on it but it's clearly the um the same apparition um we get um multiple reports um yeah every year um i had someone um 
and they tell me that they'd been up on the mountain on the full moon in August, uh, towards the beginning of August, the summer, and had heard um, a voice singing, um, with the sound kind of phasing in and out, and then had seen the, um, the, the, the shadow of this figure walking down the, the east side of the castle into the, into the courtyard, and I was, yeah, able to go back and find some of the, um, the Occitan songs associated with the place, which um, then immediately yeah, rang a bell. So the, the, she still walks. There's a, there's still a force up there. Um, and, um, in the time that I'm that I've been here, I've also um, there've been numerous times when we've um, encountered what I could only describe as ghosts or um, little little psychic overlays of other time periods. And they're things I really didn't believe in when I was younger, but um, uh, having heard them, uh, it, like um, on the side of the Ren Plateau, there's a tendency to hear horses' hooves, phantom horses galloping past when there's no, when there's no horses, and um, the, the, the summer walking out there just after dark heard um, horses galloping in exactly the place where people are always telling me that there was phantom horses going by. Well, I've got you know. No now, do you think some of this is like, you know, stone tape type of stuff where it's like sort of locked in, you know, kind of repeating itself? Or do you feel like it has its own agency to it? Well, that's one of the big questions. The multiple big questions is, um, yeah, um, is it, um, yeah, as in Nigel Neal's stone tapes um, theory, something uh, which is just a memory recorded in the crystalline structure of the rock that's, using our nervous systems as essentially as wetware to um to, to endlessly um replay itself and replay its sensations which it could be but then that brings into the it brings in the issue of um how interactive is it right and um and um yeah and, and what is how does it perceive us and because your interaction with it uh I mean, how interactive was it on it, it its end? Do you know what I mean? I mean, I know that what you've told on the on the documentary, but did it interact with you in the same way that you were sort of emotionally interacting with it? Well, that's a big question. Is is how does it perceive us, and how do they perceive us? I, I don't know. Um, it, it is the is the answer. It's um, because there's also some a level in which it's really hard to. Um, to honestly um, believe anything uh, unless um, one's got an independent witness uh, how much of it is going on, uh, how much we're um, molding it into humanly acceptable terms is hard to see. Uh, but I, I've also seen um, just lots of just little odd little things like, um, for instance, um, someone coming up into the castle courtyard in the dark and putting down their pack when they're very tired and they, their frying pan in the back of the pack hits a rock. And you see all these in, these presences taking off in fright <laughs> uh, yeah. without the person even noticing it. It's like, okay, they heard that. <laughs> uh, but I don't know what, how they were perceiving it, but are we are we their ghosts? Right. In, in, in some other world, are we uh, are we haunting them? Uh, the uh, how the inter how much we're interacting and how that's experienced, I I, I really can't tell. Well, I think it's important. Um, I mean, I've had my own, you know, experiences and I've listened to other people's experiences. And I think at the end of the day, what's the most important is how the experiencer felt. I mean, because that's kind of how it's kind of all we have to go off of is 
what what did your gut tell you type of thing you know and everyone everyone's different everyone has their their own different perspectives but i think it's important to to listen to the experiencer i think it's important to believe the witness and i think it's important to trust i think it's important to trust what the witness feels about what happened yeah i think it's only once you start examining multiple uh, witness accounts and finding areas of um, commonality between them uh, um, it, it really starts to come into uh, back into yeah the the realms of science mm, yeah so, i mean i think go ahead please yeah, and I've been fascinated by the amount of agreement between um, the um, all the different accounts, particularly with some of the well-established ghosts, like um, the the phantom sentry that taps its stick on the front battlement, and different things that have been reported down through the down through the decades by by different generations, but but still seem to be um to be going on. The um, the clinking of phantom hammers on phantom anvils that you can um, still hear on some sides of the mountain, which we've all heard, which seem to be yeah coming from some invisible forge. Um, yeah, who, who knows when? Um, but yeah, the as the the material builds up over the years, I've become much more um, much more of a believer, I guess. That's. How can you so not? Was, yeah, I it's mean, hard not to. <laughs> but then, but then there's this other side that that keeps popping up in my head. I'm like, here you are, you have the Wi-Fi access there, fortunately, and there's a level of technology that seems to. I would think that that is interfering ultimately with the connection, right? Um, it, it could be, but I, I I don't know if it's as simple as a, a, a Ralph Bakshi type conflict between the forces of technology and. <laughs> <laughs> I like That's, that. I uh, like we that, we though. love that movie. Thank you for referencing that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I think where I go with this too, I'm like, okay, I, we are Corey and I both live in. I live in Santa Monica. He's up in Oregon. We live in relatively suburban you know uh, american neighborhoods with with without with a lot of other energies going on around us and we're not living up on on a mountain but when you do live up on that I, I went to taos i spent a lot of time in taos new mexico back in the day and i was able to, to go to their sacred blue mountain had to receive um permission from the 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 Taos government and uh, the tribal leaders to go there and with the courtesy of a friend of mine and remember going not too far from, you know, town to this mountain and feeling things, being around things that I'd never felt before, this presence. And when you get away from the world that we know around us, the and distractions, you, and you, right you're more open to it you start seeing these things i don't know it was just a just an interesting thought that passed through my head as you're describing these stories and you know on one hand you've got skeptical people that go oh it's just this or just that no but once you get away from all of just this or just that there's a lot of truth there i think yeah. well i guess some um, consensus realities um yeah reinforced by all of our all of our human structures um, right. um we've uh, we've pretty much um flattened most of the planets in terms through either industry or agriculture 
So it's you know, yeah, a few small yeah mountainous pockets and areas that have been yeah um, underdeveloped for um, various geopolitical reasons that have uh, I guess retained some sense of yeah this Lovecraftian otherness. Um, yeah, um, the the original non-human world. And, um, right. Yeah, um, this notion of the great god Pan and panic. Um, the sensation you feel when you're on your own and um, surrounded by primal nature. I think that's panic and its um, original usage, the proximity of the um, the great god Pan. In um, many places, you've got your um, your Bigfoot, your Sasquatch, and um, in Oregon, yeah. uh, in um, far north Queensland and Australia, they talk about the bunyip, which no one ever sees the, the bunyip. And I say, well, how, how do you guys um, you know, even know it's there if you never see it? And they say, because um, you get the fear, mate. You get the fear. Um, everything goes quiet and you feel it. Um, so I'm sure that the fear that the Akas get in, the, in far north Queensland and this primal sense of panic of proximity to the unknown or to um, whatever those primal forces of nature are is, is probably the, um, the same thing. They've, they've also got Bigfoot in um, Australia. They call them Yowies. But they're also big hairy people who um, live out in the woods somewhere. Oh yeah, I'm still trying to find one every time I go hiking up here in Oregon. But I think I want it too much, and so I won't probably get to see one. <laughs> <laughs> um, Richard, I, I, we want to be very, you know, conscious of your time and everything. Um, I do have one more question from our pal Cam um, on Patreon. He says uh, he asks. What is your what's what is your favorite character or creature in a movie that you've made? Uh, what is one like? What is your favorite character that you've created for your films? Um, I, I think I like um, if, if again if there's a guy I wanted to spend more time around, it was um, Joe Nimant, Joe Nobody, the one-eyed driving projectionist in um, in Dust Devil. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. but, yeah, who, 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 who's fully deranged, but um, I, I kind of miss Joe. Um, would like to hear more from him. Oh, he was. I. That's he's great. a great character. He's that. the one that that delivered the line that I that I love. That's fantastic. I, again, I love that movie. Uh, I love Hardware so much. Um, do you have anything you 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 know you want to talk about that you're working on now? Anything that's coming out that you want to let everybody know about or anything? Well, um, still um, beavering away on uh, in the H.P. Lovecraft world. But um, beyond that, do have a book, which is um, going to surface in the um, yeah presumably the next within the next six months, because um, I've just signed a um, a contract with um, Inner Traditions, who will be carrying um, the Last Crusade, um, the quest for SS Oberstormführer Otto Wilhelm Rahn, the um, the yeah the the true story behind the um, the Nazi Grail hunt. Um, awesome. Yeah, finally, um, coming into into print, um, and that's largely because there's been any number of folk who have been um, trying to um, stop that story from getting out for a really long time, and I, I got tired of it. And I thought, um, this side of death before anything happens to me, I wanted to um, put the whole damn thing between two covers and um, put it in the public domain. So, right um, on. Yeah, so the last crusade is um yeah, about to land in um from yeah, inner traditions in the um in the US. Oh very cool. Very cool. 
Oh, we said it at the same time. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, too, on a side note, your uh, audiobook of uh, Color Out of Space is fantastic. And uh, the I, I own several Walkmen, by I have, the way. It's right and up there, so, by the way. It's right up the, the Color Out of yeah. Space audiobook's right up there. <laughs> well, I'd really like the cassette tape. Huh? Oh, you. I Yeah. You have a really, uh, I, I really appreciate your. Uh, your, your cadence and your style when you read. So as someone who loves audiobooks, but also reading to my son and um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a craft for sure. Are you going to do uh, your book? Are you going to do the audio version of it? Um, I guess that's down to inner traditions. Um, but you know, um, let, let that unfold. I, I think that could work. And do you have Very a, cool. do you have a dream book that you would like to narrate? Uh, well, um, I certainly um, would like to read more of the um, of the Lovecraft material, and that um, I'd love to do um, Dunwich Horror or um, to um, yeah to um, to read some of the um, the longer narratives. I'm also a huge um, huge Clark Ashton Smith fan, and um, yeah, in an ideal world, would like to do more of my own material. Um, I hope that once. Um, the um last crusade is out i'll be um yeah freed up to um yeah to to write another one richard thank you so much for for taking the time to do this i mean it it means the world to me and zach this was a dream come true truly oh man i'd be happy to do it again and yeah it's been a pleasure and send me some send me a links to your um your breakdown of um of color i'd like to see that we will have to continue our conversations of what goes bump in the night and why it goes bump in the night down the road. Yeah. So uh, looking forward to that. <laughs> sure as I say. Thank All right. you, sir. Thank you very Take much. Take care. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Podcasting After Dark's exclusive interview series, with Richard Stanley. And, as always, thank you for your support.